the Anesthesia Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our first ever live journal broadcast. My name is Mike Charles, I'm one of the editors of the journal, and I'm also joined by my colleague, Louise Savage, who is also an editor of Anesthesia. Good morning, Louise, as well. Good morning. Uh, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Sir Jeremy Farrar and Professor Tim Cook, who've written an excellent paper about COVID-19 vaccines and how this might be one step towards the beginning of the end of the global impact of the pandemic. Their paper discusses vaccine development, the mechanisms of their action and various issues around who we should prioritise, not just in the UK, but globally. They also post some unanswered questions and challenges, which will no doubt be a major theme of research and discussion over the next few months. Good morning, Louise, Jeremy and Tim. Um, morning. morning. Let's start with a question for Jeremy to get us going. Um, one of the ways in which we as a journal have had to adapt to the pandemic was to speed up our processes, but without cutting corners and whilst keeping the editorial standards high, obviously there's been some high profile cases of where peer review has not been quite as good as it maybe should have been and things have slipped through the net. And we're delighted to say that, um, that we hope that that's not affected us as much. Um, but this is, I guess, has also been the case with vaccine development, but on an industrial scale. So who's responsible for this and how was it achieved? Mike, thanks very much. And uh, and Louise, and um, this, this is new for me as well. I've not done one of these before, so we're breaking new ground. And, and uh, thanks very much. Um, yeah, it has been. The, the, the first sequence of the virus was uh, released by the Chinese authorities on the 10th of January. And uh, I think more or less by the 10th of December, uh, people in the UK and then very soon afterwards in the United States were starting to be vaccinated. That is a, a extraordinary achievement. I mean, uh, words like extraordinary and unprecedented get used a lot, but but uh, that is a remarkable achievement. And there's a huge number of people who have been be behind that in the UK. I think the UK Vaccine Task Force has done an absolutely staggering job. Kate Bingham uh, deserves enormous credit for that. And globally, WHO and CEPI and uh, many others and industry we, we we often don't give enough thanks to industry but they have really stepped up and made their assets and their manufacturing capacities available i think the key thing mike just to finish off is is that instead of doing things in sequence where you would do some of the research you'd stop you'd pause you look you'd look at things then you would plan the manufacturing plant you plan the regulatory path all of that has gone on in parallel uh, there's been rolling submissions to the regulatory agencies who have been really good in supporting the innovation. So just shows you if you do things in parallel, you don't have to cut corners, you're not lowering your standards, but you can do things faster. Fantastic. Louise, I think you've got a question as well. Yes, another one for Jeremy, actually. So it's been said by the WHO that no one is safe until we're all safe. Uh, and the worldwide demand for vaccine is likely to exceed tens of billions of doses. So I was wondering how you how you think we can ensure the fight against COVID-19 with the more than 200 vaccines that are under development remains a, a really global effort and, a, and a, an effort without borders. Yeah, this is crucial. I mean, the, the research effort has been completely without borders. I mean, it's well documented. The, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine came out of a, a really great uh, technology company in Germany. It's been developed by an American company. It's been first used in the UK. Uh, similar with the Johnson Johnson, similar with the AstraZeneca Oxford one, the Chinese vaccines as well. So it has been a truly global effort. And, and this is a, you know, it's a pandemic. It's affecting every 
town, every city, every country on Earth. And, and if we allow that transmission to go on anywhere on Earth, uh, unfettered by vaccines, then the virus will change, it'll mutate, and uh, it'll come back to haunt every country in the future. And, and so it's, it's a health issue scientific issue, but it's also an economic issue. If we want the world economy to get back on track, then the whole world has to be back on track. And it's only when everybody is protected that we'll all be protected. Tim, I'm going to bring you in now and, and ask about healthcare workers um, who've been said to be amongst those who are a priority for vaccination. Um, if this is the case, do you think this will benefit patients and the wider public as well? Um, and do you think there'll be implications for those undergoing surgery? Uh, yeah, it's um, the simple answer is yes. I'm sorry, I've got very little voice at the moment. The simple answer is yes, and the um, more complicated answer is uh, yes. Um, the so globally, um, perhaps one in five, certainly more than one in ten, um, infections have affected healthcare workers, and that has a significant impact on obviously healthcare workers themselves, but also on delivery of services. Um, in the UK, you'll be aware that there are prioritisation groups um, for who should be vaccinated first. So that starts with the, those in, in care homes, the elderly in care homes, and those carers of them, which is about a million people. And, um, and then after that, uh, the over 80s and healthcare workers and, and social care workers, and they account for probably another, another 2 million. And then we get down to the to the over 75s, but in that those top three groups, um, there's probably only probably less than six percent of the population, but about uh, 90, 80 or 90 percent of the deaths, and therefore prioritising those groups uh, for vaccination early is likely to um, uh, minimise or most rapidly reduce the rate of mortality, the excess mortality. Now. WHO globally has prioritised healthcare workers slightly above the elderly in some ways, so slightly different priority lists. And those are because of the different sort of population uh, ratios in different countries, the impact on healthcare workers in different ways. But one of the problems that we've, that we've all seen is that healthcare workers have become sick. Um, uh, that has uh, discouraged some people from going to work. Uh, but it's also prevented many people from going to work. And apart from that individual's personal health, you know, people are unwell for a long period of time after COVID, it also disrupts services. And um, throughout the UK, we've had um, perhaps up to 10% of healthcare population off sick at the moment. Um, and that's uh, both uh, unpleasant for the staff, harmful to a small number of staff, and that has been an excess of mortality amongst healthcare workers, and, but it's particularly important that it disrupts services as well. So is it important for, um, for patients as well? Yes. We must remember that about 20% of patients who acquire COVID within the hospital are at risk of se severe COVID and, and perhaps even mortality because it often affects those longer staying um, medical patients and higher risk surgical patients. And so the risk of asymptomatic transmission um, from staff to patients and harm to patients uh, from, from healthcare workers is also important. So for multiple reasons, it's important that healthcare workers are not only um, prioritised in terms of vaccine, vaccine rollout, but also that everybody steps up and takes it. It's not one to say, well, I'll allow other people to do it. Um, it's really one where, where 
uh, we all need to step forward and take our vaccine twice. I'll just bring Jeremy in on that because I guess one of the staggering things about the trial of the, uh, for example, the Oxford vaccine was uh, that it prevented severe disease in those who were vaccinated versus controls, um, and which was a, a really staggering finding, I believe. It was. I mean, it, we will learn a lot more about all of these vaccines uh, as they get rolled out, of course. But yeah, the Astra, as you say, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, uh, I, I think I'm right in saying that the, nobody was admitted to hospital in the vaccine group. I mean, that's a staggering achievement. Uh, and and I'm, it'll be similar with the other vaccines. I mean, one of the on the optimistic note, one of, one of the remarkable things about developing a vaccine in 10 months is actually that it's been possible. Um, it's clear that actually, you, you know, you do have immunity after natural infection and you've been able to uh, replicate that with, with a vaccine. Of course, we don't know how long that immunity is going to last, uh, but we do know it does give you really very good protection against getting illness. Does it prevent you transmitting to other people? My guess is it will, uh, but we don't know what sort of levels of percentages that, that is. And just to pick up on Tim's point, healthcare workers have been, you know, have put their lives on the line during this COVID pandemic uh, in every country in the world. And, and uh, I think uh, all of you who have done that deserve enormous credit and thanks. And uh, I think health co-workers do have to be in that priority group, as Tim says. Hey, Mike, I think it's worth saying uh, in terms of the, uh, the vaccine development. So I think typically it's taken uh, 10, 15, even 20 years to develop a vaccine. And a lot of that is because of the sort of financial risk associated with doing it. So I think one of the, as well as the in parallel processes, which Jeremy has alluded to about development at risk um, and uh, supporting uh, production and rollout processes while vaccines are being developed and tested, is that there's been a degree of risk pooling by the by the big organisations, such that the companies were enabled um, uh, to to take on financial risk or to avoid financial risk that would have been associated at each stage, and which generally slows down the vaccine development. Um, but it's important to to note that that, that many of the vaccine companies have, have done their development at cost, without profit, which Jeremy might be able to speak to better than me. Um, and I think um, they they you know they uh, deserve significant respect for doing that. Those that have done that. At least. Yeah, so this is a question about logistics, really, of, of the vaccine rollout. So as an estimate, if there were 1,000 vaccination centres, each vaccinating 500 people five days a week, uh, it's thought it would take about a whole, well, it would take a whole year to get through the UK. And obviously, we've never had such a, uh, a vaccine deployment in, in living memory. And the scale of this effort is just enormous. Do you think this is something we can realistically achieve? Yeah, the, the, the logistics now, I mean, <clears throat> there's still a lot of science to be done. And, and we've seen in the last 24, 48 hours, the, um, uh, a new variant of this virus uh, developing. We don't fully understand the consequences of that yet. It looks as if it won't impact the vaccine, but it, it's still a concerning development. Uh, but but in, in some ways, this has moved from a scientific challenge now to a logistics challenge. And Nobody should underestimate that. No, um, there have been countries that have rolled out vaccine campaigns in the last 10, 20 years, but they've been mostly in the meningitis belt of Africa, in Nigeria for polio, Afghanistan, Pakistan for polio as well. And there's undoubtedly lessons to be learned from those countries about how they've rolled out vaccine 
deployment programs. And in my view, that has to have a national framework, as you described, uh, but then it has to be locally led uh, and it has to be trusted. Uh, transparency of the data, information flows is just so important to ensure that everybody has trust in these vaccines and uh, and is willing to have them. That that is so hugely important. I do think it will be important possible once the logistics get in place to roll out the vaccines a little bit quicker than than the numbers you suggested. Uh, if um, if this if this rollout in the first few months goes goes well, what is important is that the vaccine campaign gets done during the spring and the summer, so that when we come into the winter of 2021. Preferably, hopefully, the majority of people in this country will have received the vaccine. Mm. Yeah. And Louise, it's perhaps worth emphasising that the, the numbers we put in the paper were illustrative, simply to to show the, the challenge that so we said a thousand centres vaccinating five hundred people a day, uh, five days a week without interruption, and that would get through the entire UK population in a little bit under a year. And if you double the number of centres or double the mm people you have the time of course one of the logistic challenges is that um significant records will have to be kept of you know have to document who is vaccinated but also because there is a, the booster needed people will need to return for their vaccine within three weeks or around three weeks after their first vaccine so as jeremy says it is a a massive logistical challenge and at the moment being very put very much it seems at the, at the door of the of primary care um, on top of all the other work that they have to do so um there is a lot of thinking to do that but one has to be very optimistic about this going forward great I guess one of the main challenges facing societies uh, more generally since the emergence of the novel coronavirus has been the issues around um, the ethics of balancing the rights of the individuals against the collective responsibility for public health. Do you think an effective vaccine and an effective vaccination strategy promises to bring us close to reconciling these differences? Hmm. Or do you think they'll become more apparent um, as we return to the pre-COVID era? That's a really difficult question, Mike. Uh, but it's a crucial question. You're right. I mean, there's there's been uh, arguments. Everyone's seen them played out over the last uh, year about uh, uh, personal freedoms. The wearing of masks has become a political issue in some countries. Uh, the the uptake of vaccines has become a political issue in, in some countries. I, I think, personally, the way to counter these is to be absolutely as transparent as possible with the information. Uh, to make sure all of the data is in the public domain, uh, that the trusted people, yes, in government, but also in uh, in faith groups, in sports clubs, in uh, social gatherings, in all communities, are involved in the rollout of the vaccine and are willing to answer questions when it becomes uh, when they when they become apparent. And it is about building trust. Trust is at the heart of public health, and without trust. You can't deliver public health, and you certainly can't deliver a vaccine program. There's this there's this concept of um, vaccine hesitancy or vaccine reluctance, and it has been estimated that there are about 15 to 20 percent, so one in six, one in five, of the UK population who might be reluctant to take uh, the vaccine. Um, and so that's specifically the, the COVID-19 vaccine, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. 
Um, but it seems that um, the vast majority of these individuals are um, worried about safety rather than um, conspiracy theorists. So there's quite a lot of noise about conspiracy theory. I'm not going to get to the conspiracies, obviously, um, which aren't true. Um, but I think a lot of the a lot of the, the concern is 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 concern about safety. And as Jeremy says, we need to be transparent about the results of studies that have been that have been done, um, the safety of the vaccine program as it's rolled out, um, and ongoing surveillance. And it would seem that um, the education and transparency is probably the best way to alleviate those those concerns. And of course, as the program is rolled out, particularly to the high risk people in the, in the first instance, there will be months and large numbers of people being vaccinated, during which time it will become uh, ever more evident, one hopes, uh, about the safety of these vaccines. And of course, uh, the efficacy. And, and I think, you know, over time, uh, people will be, you know, frankly, begging for these vaccines. They are a real step forward. Just following on from that, Tim, what impact do you think the uh, reported episodes of anaphylaxis last week, which have hit the news, might have on, on vaccine rollouts and vaccine uptake? Yeah, they, they will have. I mean, of course, uh, but it's much better that information is in the public domain um, and that it, it is shared. Uh, you know, the, the, you can't, there are no drugs, there are no vaccines, which you can promise to absolutely everybody will will have absolutely zero risk. The, the, there will be, the, almost all of the uh, side effects will be short-lived and, and relatively minor or minor, um, but you can't promise something uh, crossing the road or having a, a vaccine or, or taking a, a, a headache pill all of these come with a very, very tiny risk. It's much better that we're transparent and open about that. Uh, we share that information. And also we um, make sure that the information on the safety and the effectiveness of these vaccines is shared as well. On, on Mike's point, I, I think just flipping it the other way around, um, there has been tensions over the last 10, 20 years of this question of individual freedoms versus public responsibilities. Uh, I, maybe there's a chance through COVID, which is a reminder just of the incredible uh, power of nature, but also the, the, the how integrated we all are, both as a nation and a globe, um, to actually re-examine that and, and rethink what are our public responsibilities as well as our individual freedoms. So, so maybe that's something that we could actually take away from this and build on. And then emphasising the, you know, the, the safety or concerns about any concerns there are about the vaccine, it is worth uh, remembering. So much of the data focuses on the deaths associated with um, with COVID, um, but many of us um, have seen uh, uh, young patients um, who are who have not died, who have survived, but have been very very sick with COVID, and indeed many colleagues who have been sick and off for many weeks um, after acquiring COVID at, at work or elsewhere. And it's probably only 15 or 20% of the whole population who have had COVID so far. So 80%, 70, 80% are probably still at risk. So there's a, a huge amount of illness um, as, and, and long-term uh, ill health to prevent through vaccination, not just prevention of the deaths. So I think you know the idea that it focuses just on prevention of deaths or just on those very high risk groups uh, remains something we need to get away from as well. So I think there's probably time for one more question for Tim, if you've got one, Louise. Yes, I was just wondering what you thought the implications of the vaccine were for anaesthetists and for their patients. 
It's, it's really good news. I mean, I can't remember the exact, but the, uh, the title of the paper is um, COVID-19 vaccines, one step towards the beginning of the end of the global impact pandemic. And so it's quite a long, it's not, we're at the end. It's the first step. And we do emphasise that vaccines are one part, one pillar of, of ongoing um, management of this pandemic, which involves improved and use of extra diagnostics, um, use of current and um, developing therapeutics and vaccines, all delivered within working healthcare systems. And vaccines are part of that, but they are uh, a huge, this is a huge result, what's happened in the last three months, what has developed over the last 10 months, but what's happened in the last uh, three months. And it does provide an opportunity to change the trajectory of the pandemic in a way that was probably not expected to happen as quickly as possible. Um, it is going to make hospitals safer. It's going to make a health kit for, for patients. It's going to make hospitals safer for staff. Um, and uh, over time, it will make society safer and enable us to get on with our jobs. Um, you know, we weren't short of work before the pandemic, uh, and there is a huge uh, backlog of work uh, that needs to be caught up on um, over the next several years. It will be several years, um, not that. but if we can get on top of the pandemic and get this to a state where it's controlled, probably won't be eliminated, but controlled, the vaccines uh, probably provide the, the best opportunity to do that, and we should embrace them. Great. Well, I think we've really got under the skin there of a topic and there's no more important topic at the moment than this in a way that we've never really done before on Twitter. So it's been an absolute pleasure to have that discussion with you all this morning. Um, and thank you very much for joining us. Um, I just want to remind everyone who's watching that the paper is now available on our journal website. Uh, it's been re reported in various um, um, news outlets, but our recommendation to you all is the same as always, which is make sure you go away and read the full paper, which is free uh, to read and download forever. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Jeremy and Tim. Uh, and thank you very much, Louise, as well. Uh, and um, we hope to do this again uh, sometime. Um, but for now, bye-bye, um, everyone, and thank you very much. Thanks very much, Mike. Louise. Right, thanks, Louise. The Anesthesia Podcast.